This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. November 18, 2022. This is a Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It's a few days after the end of the ACR annual meeting Convergence 2022. The trip home was uneventful. The trip to Philadelphia was exhausting. Philly was great. The city is a great walking town. It's rich in culture. It's rich in history. It's uh, places to go to and dine and meet and mingle are bountiful. I must say the first few nights of the meeting were great catching up with a number of different people in some great places. Uh, And the weather was reasonable. Uh, Then, you know, I got there on Thursday. I left on Tuesday for what was basically a Saturday, Sunday, Monday meeting. Um, Again, Philly was great. Convention center, not so great. Not my favorite convention center. Not easy to navigate. Um, The people who worked there were nice. But you had to run between different buildings. You spend two days trying to understand the layout, and then you go home. It's really, uh, as convention centers go, and then, of course, it's marred by everything is union-driven. Like, to get a light bulb changed, you need a work order and $1,000. It's kind of ridiculous. So I wish the ACR wouldn't use the Philadelphia Convention Center. I wish they would have meetings in Philadelphia, just not the convention center. Um... Well, they'll figure it out. What else? Uh, It was good to be back at the meeting. Um, While the crowds were down, overall attendance was down about a third. And so it wasn't so crowded, you know, in the hallways or at the exhibit floors. Um, You know, it was great to see people. It was great to meet up with people. Uh, The funny thing is, there's a lot of people I didn't see at the meeting, although I know at the meeting because I saw them on the plane going home. Like, isn't that an amazing phenomenon? Even with a um, a watered-down crowd, still finding your own folk at the ACR meeting can be uh, challenging if you don't have it prearranged. Um, navigating the meeting was difficult um, because of the layout. Um, I don't know what it was. I mean, there's plenty of time between sessions. I, I found it difficult to know where I'm going next. And usually, I mean, I spend the whole, you know, weeks before planning my, th- my, my hit list and the night before where I'm going to go. I just didn't find it very good because of a, being a shorter meeting. Um, I didn't have any meetings. I Lots of companies, lots of people wanted to meet with me. Um, I said, you know, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. So I, you know, I had to hold off people because, and I'm glad I did, um, because it just wasn't conducive. Um, there were a lot of great things about this meeting. My, one of my favorite was the year in review that featured uh, Dr. Carol Langford from the Cleveland Clinic and John Varker from Michigan. They really did just a bang-up job. And then um, Ken Sag, you know, did a fabulous job with his uh, presidential address and, uh, you know, his enthusiasm was just fabulous for the awards and the recipients. And then he had a great session where he introduced um, uh, uh, Abraham Varghese from Stanford, well-known author who gave really an eloquent, spellbinding um, keynote address talking about um, COVID 
and uh, how COVID affects our lives. And he's an, he's an, uh, a notable ID specialist. And he said he thought that the seminal event in his career was HIV, but it turns out it's probably COVID. And then he talked about COVID as being a repeat of history's greatest stories, beginning with Gilgamesh and Beowulf and lots of others. It's a monster tale, right? And what's great about monster tales that is that it involves heroes. And you were the hero. Physicians, healthcare workers were the heroes. Uh, and I think it was a really good, feel-good lecture. The audience loved it. Um, and he did a, a, an amazing job. Um, again, I think the one of the downsides of the meeting was not having posters. And uh, you either had to find them electronically or go to the Ignite sessions, which were more like the Ignore sessions. Again, I don't know what went wrong there, but you, mo nobody stayed at the Ignore sessions. You know, they were just out of the way, little country fair stages with... You know, I would have gone if I had a fellow presenting and then I would have left right after because there was nothing to keep me there in the layout and delivery. It sort of was a dud. But, you know, the ACR had to plan this meeting long before the meeting occurred, long before we knew the status of COVID and whether people would be running around with masks or not. And that is uh, was the challenge. It'll be much better next year. It'll be much better next year at ULAR as well. Finally, uh, my meeting report will end with the what I call the snack snark report where, you know, where do you go on the exhibit floor to get a good snack or to get a good something to drink or whatever? You know, it's usually the snacks are bad. It's like biscotti that, you know, you can cause a brain injury with, or it's coffee. I don't like coffee. Like where's the diet Coke, you know, a bottle of water even, you know, but uh, this year again, they're back with the coffee and not much else. Um, but they did have a number of like sweetie things, you know, cookies and brownies and pumpkin cobbler and, and, and one big exhibitor had Philly cheesesteaks. The line was big. Every time I went there to get a Philly cheesesteak, it was too long. I had to be somewhere. And, but the good news was on the last day when I went to get a Philly cheesesteak, who's sitting at, at the table, but Charlie Dinarello. Charles Dinarello, inventor, you know, master scientist of IL-1 beta. I know Charlie a long time because of our common interest in IL-1 auto-inflammatory and Stills disease. Got to sit with him, got to interview him, check it out on the website. Um, he's 79 now. He has, still has the same NIH grant that he renews every year because of high quality science. Um, Charlie Dinarello is a legend in the world of rheumatology, infectious disease, and immunology. So I'll give you a few um, abstracts to chew on. First off, making this list was a little bit hard because I've been talking a lot this week, and if you really want to digest this meeting, I'm going to give you but a taste of the things I really haven't talked about before. If you want to digest this meeting, you can either watch the video or the podcast for the daily faculty recaps. There's three videos, three podcasts. Or if you're a lupus or RA gal, you can look at the topic panels on RA, lupus, PSA, and SPA. Again, available as videos or as podcasts. Um, last night, Artie Kavanaugh and I did a rheumatology roundup, a spirited one hour of 
um, a brilliant and glib comment um, that's worth listening to as a video or a podcast. And then lastly, um, next week we're going to be rolling out topic podcasts. So we're for those of you who are RA, PSA, SPA, or lupus aficionados, we've compiled all the RA reports into one podcast that you might want to listen to while you're uh, walking the dog or folding the clothes. But today I'm going to talk about a few abstracts. Let's start with abstract 0338 from Yang et al. at the Mayo Clinic. Um, They talked about the likelihood of transitioning to systemic lupus once you're diagnosed with cutaneous lupus erythematosus. So they collected a um, cohort of 320 incident CLE patients um, using the Gilliam criteria for CLE. Jim Gilliam, a famous dermatologist from UT Southwestern who I met when I was a first year fellow. Amazing. Um, Anyway, they followed patients for a mean, I think, of at least eight or nine years. And overall, 26 of the three, two or 324, or almost 12%, went on to develop systemic lupus over time. Turns out that um, a little less than half would transition by year five, and that the rate of transition was about less than 3% every, three, every five years from years five through years 20 never really thought about this. I've seen a few cases of this, but yeah, patients with CLE, and that would include DLE and SCLE and other forms, can actually transition um, into systemic disease. Uh, Abstract number 0246, Cindy Croson and colleagues also from the Mayo Clinic, where they do a lot of great research, and they've been working hard the last few years on comorbidities. This particular report was a bit of a mind-bender, a mind-blower, if you will. They did a cluster analysis of several hundred lupus patients they followed over time and come up with four clusters, each cluster having uh, different outcomes, different phenotypic profiles, Um, like cluster one, for instance, were younger patients that had very few comorbidities. And ultimately, they were looking at, um, A, how many comorbidities you had in each cluster, and B, whether that cluster had a different outcome as far as mortality. Well, it turns out clusters one, two, and three, not so much. Um, Cluster four, older patients with five or more um, morbidities had a significant reduction in survival with, you know, the survival lines, mortality lines, one, two, three, being flat across the top and group number four taking a dive. Um, the interesting thing about this particular study, I think almost 60% had one plus, co- uh, no, over 90%, 92% had one or more comorbidities. And that almost, uh, 50, I think it was 59% had five or more comorbidities. This is a significant change from years past. I've done other compilations of comorbidities in RA, and, you know, it used to be that, oh, I think the number was about 60% of RA patients had one or more comorbidities. In this study, it was 92%. The different thing, and then, again, historically, it was two or more was seen in about 25%. And then in this study, 59% had five or more. What's the difference? My historic ones from, were from 10, 20 years ago. This one is more recent years, starting in two, 2015. So if this is true, you, the rheumatologist, have got a lot to worry about. 
meaning comorbidities are uh, on the rise and when present in multiplicity, especially in your older RA patients, they kill. Now, all of you talk about comorbidities. You often leverage that to get your patients to comply or start therapy, but none of you are managing comorbidities. Everyone says, I don't do that. That's what the primary care does. The problem is your patients think that you're the one. You understand them. They don't follow up with their primary care like they should. You don't even mandate it. So either you start to get militant about comorbidity management and primary care co-management, or you need to take a serious look at your own practices and step up, identify comorbidities, start the management, and then use that as leverage to get patients to go see their primary care. Again, you know best what they should be doing. Abstract 0344, Shivani Garg from the University of Wisconsin had a novel analysis of hydroxychloroquine blood levels and what that meant as far as disease control um, and whether there were social determinants as to what happened. Turns out the social determinants were not very important here. But when I looked at hydroxychloroquine levels, they were either less than 500, 750, 1,000, 1,500, more up, you know, above or below. What they found was that if you were less than 500, that was probably a patient who was not compliant. But if they were greater than 500, they probably were compliant. Patients who were at 750 or 1,000 or above, but below 1,500, had at least a 75% lower risk of, 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 of flares. So that's significant. That's where your therapeutic levels are um, in, in, in this cohort. The, the worrisome ones were the ones that were over 1,500. They had more toxicity. Um, and then the other interesting part about this analysis was that they looked at, um, at blood levels according to renal status. So compared to stage 1 CKD, patients with stage 2 CKD or higher had a fourfold higher risk of supertherapeutic levels and therefore a risk of toxicity, supertherapeutic being greater than 1,500 nanograms per ml. A really uh, nice, insightful abstract. Abstract number 1604, Kevin Dean and colleagues at the University of Colorado published the long-awaited results of the STOP-RA trial. To me, this is probably the, what I think was the most important study. At least I was looking forward to this the most, although it turns out to be a negative study. STOP-RA is an intervention in patients who may be at risk of rheumatoid arthritis. They enrolled patients with a high CCP, they didn't have to have symptoms. They just found these patients in all kinds of ways, fairs, relatives, whatnot, and they did not have to have you know, um, any or joint pain or, uh, or they did not have to be first-degree relatives. So it's kind of a loose definition of an at-risk individual, although it's CCP. And you'd expect that maybe you know, uh, 20% or more patients might develop disease. If it's a really high titer CCP, maybe 30%. So they actually... Um, took about five years to enroll this. This was difficult to enroll this study, especially during COVID. They um, prematurely stopped this trial for futility because when you randomize the 140 or so patients to either hydroxychloroquine weight dosed um, and or placebo, in the end, a third of patients um, developed RA and it didn't matter whether you're on hydroxychloroquine or not. Hydroxychloroquine, 34%, placebo, 36%, not significant. Hydroxychloroquine does not work in your patients who you think, I don't know, 
Maybe they'll develop something. Let me give them something safe, something that works. Well, in this scenario, not so much hydroxychloroquine would not be recommended. There were a number of different studies about early RA and preclinical RA. Um, listen to other podcasts and videos for more discussion of that. Abstract number 1117-1117 was a, a phase 2 study of ducravacitinib, the TIC2 inhibitor, uh, against placebo in patients with active SLE. So they had as a 48-week phase 2 study, 363 um, autoantibody positive patients who were active with a SLEDI of 6 or greater, randomized to either receive um, the ducravacitinib uh, 3 BID, 6 milligrams BID, or 12 milligrams once a day, or placebo. Um, and, and at 32 weeks, ducravacitinib, 32, 3 milligrams BID was, and 6 milligrams BID were significantly higher than placebo. Placebo response about 35, 37%. The ducravacitinib, 3 milligrams BID, about 60%, a little less. Um, these results were maintained out to week 48. There were no particular adverse events of interest. There were no venous thromboembolic events. This is phase two. Lupus studies look great in phase two. Let's hope it looks great in phase three, which is currently underway. Lastly, abstract number L12, late breaker number 12, looked at first-line anakinra, the IL-1 receptor antagonist, in patients with systemic JIA. I like this because, as you know, this earlier this year, the ACR guidelines came out with recommendations on treating systemic JIA, saying that someone who's newly diagnosed and active with systemic JIA, it's okay to use a cytokine inhibitor, IL-1 or IL-6. In this uncontrolled, open-label study um, that collected data on 65 patients, 60 of them got anakinra first, and then five of them got anakinra after some steroids, and in the end, um, the outcomes here were excellent. You know, at, at six months, 72% achieved a complete response, meaning no, no disease activity and off of steroids. And that was maintained uh, out to 12 months. I think the number was 68%. So no new side effects or whatnot. An interesting uh, sub-study within this study was to look at whether they could identify those kids who developed this systemic JIA-associated um, interstitial lung disease. As you know, that's been reported. It's somewhat uncommon, if not rare. Um, it's thought to be maybe an allergic reaction of the dress type um, to this biologic, and there's some indication it may be restricted to a certain HLA group. So they did HLA genotyping, uh, specifically looking for HLA-DR-beta-1-1501, turns out that the genotyping had no impact on A, disease outcomes or predicting disease outcomes, B, identifying people who were going to develop this um, uh, interstitial lung disease. There was only one case uh, out of the 15 cases who were HLA-DR-beta-1-1501. There's only one case suggesting it really doesn't have utility. But again, the takeaway here of value is that first-line IL-1 inhibition looks really good in kids with systemic JIA. Hope you enjoyed ACR as much as I did. Uh, we're looking forward to going again next year in San Diego uh, and also in ULAR, which is coming up in June in Milan. Um, but we'll be back next week with another podcast for you. Take care.
Welcome to the best of PSA at ACR 2022 for Sunday today, uh, November 13th, 2022. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate. I am here to represent team um, PSA. I'm going to tell you who those people are because they are important and they have been giving you all of the information for roomnow.com for team PSA. So I want to highlight their work. It's Drs. Orly Naj, Trish Harkins, Robert Chow, and Olga Petrina. I thank them for their dedication and um, check out their videos, of course, for highlighting other great works on psoriatic disease throughout ACR 2022 on our website. Without further ado, here are tonight's top two in PSA. Our first abstract tonight is by Dr. Gladman et al. It's from the foremost study. This is abstract 1018. The objective of this particular study was to look at psoriatic arthritis disease phenotypes, including location, disease distribution, kind of other manifestations of, of the disease. The study looked at over 220 patients with less than one year of disease activity at the time of enrollment. Within the overall group, nearly 60% of these patients had one, or pardon me, more than one tender and swollen joint. Of those patients who only had one joint involved, approximately 40% of the aforementioned patients, the majority had small joint involvement, and as you would think, predominantly PIP joints. What they ultimately found is that despite the few number of joints involved in this particular early oligoarticular PSA patient population, those patients experienced high disease burden and impaired quality of life in terms of their HACDI scores, their patient global scores, and their PSED scores. So despite the few numbers of swollen and tender joints involved. So why we think this is interesting and why you should know about it is that this study actually highlights the patient experience as it potentially diverges from the physician clinical assessment. And so it highlights our need for better understanding and really helping us to treat psoriatic disease as it, as it is for our patients. Our next abstract is 1159. The aim of this particular study was to understand uveitis and psoriatic arthritis. This was a single center in Spain. It's with Dr. Vincenti Del Mas et al. And the team studied over 400 psoriatic arthritis patients, and they discovered nearly 5% developed uveitis. Each of these cases, that 5%, they were acute. Over 80% of those patients were anterior and unilateral, and 50% of the patients had recurrence. The majority of the patients were found to be HLA-B27 who had uveitis. They had a history or active sacroiliitis and had elevated BASB and PSED scores at the time of uveitis. The incidence of uveitis before versus after biologic treatment was decreased in the TNF inhibitor group with the exception of those patients treated with a Tanercept or patients who were treated with secukinumab in which both instances were increased. So this begs the question, is the instance really around 5% or are we potentially treating preclinical uveitis risk with certain TNF inhibitors? As always, we have more questions than answers, but these are your clinical considerations from our psoriatic arthritis team. As always, follow me on Twitter, at up to Tate, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow when we can meet again from Philly, forroomnow.com from ACR 2022. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia. 
been a very busy meeting. A lot of interesting papers, as always, and it's good to be back in person to be able to interact with people. The abstracts I'd like to cover are in psoriatic arthritis. One I'm going to present right now is a late breaker, late breaker 02, and this is from the B-Optimal study. This was a study of bimikizumab, the IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor, compared with adalimumab and then also with placebo. So it's an interesting study that we're, uh, we like. It's not powered strictly to be a head-to-head -head study, but we are able to compare the data. At 16 weeks, what we saw was that the, the uh, bimikizumab and the adalimumab arm were superior to the placebo. We had seen those data before. At 16 weeks, the bimikizumab 160 milligram group continued. The adalimumab group switched to the bimikizumab at week 16, as did the placebo group. Then they were followed out over time. Interestingly, uh, at the end point of the study, the ACR50 response is pretty similar. 54.5, 50, and 53 across the, the original bimikizumab group, the original adalimumab group, and the original placebo group, all of whom are on bimikizumab now. And the MDA response is very nice, 55%, 53%, and 53.7%. So I think these studies, I love studies that give us the ability to kind of take a look at different mechanisms of action. Uh, I think we're looking at appropriate goals like minimal disease activity, and it's interesting data. I think with the bimikizumab, we have to see are there going to be differences to the other IL-17 inhibitors in terms of either efficacy or safety. So very interested in seeing additional data from this. It's a great presentation uh, at the ACR, and this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from Philadelphia, ACR 2022 Convergence for Room Now. I'm Anthony Chan, consultant rheumatologist from London, United Kingdom, reporting here for Room Now at ACR 22. There have been lots of interesting papers looking at new therapies, and the area that we are really interested in is the use of uh, JAK inhibitors. These have come along and uh, has really uh, revolutionized some of the treatments, especially in areas such as axial spondyloarthritis. One of the concerns that we have is about the incidence of um, major cardiovascular events or venous thromboembolism. And there was a study uh, presented here at ACR22 poster 510, where the, uh, they looked at the use of uh, upadacitinib, which is a selective JAK1 inhibitor, uh, across indications in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and also ankylosing spondylitis. And here they had over 6,000 patients who uh, were recruited into the uh, studies, uh, and this involved nine different studies, and they looked particularly into the aspect of major cardiovascular events, MACE, and also BTEs. When you look at the uh, population study, the 40 to 50 percent of these patients had two or more risk factors for cardiovascular events, and also more than a quarter of them were above the age of 65. This immediately would put them at risk of having cardiovascular events and also a possible venous thromboembolism. What was interesting in this study across uh, the nine studies when they pulled the data was the actual incidence of uh, MACE was low. Uh, there were none in the, uh, in the ankylosing spondylitis group and 41 in the rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis group. When they looked at these uh, patients who had MACE in the RA and PSA group, 
they were enriched for risk factors. So these were standard risk factors uh, such as hypertension uh, and diabetes that, that predisposed them to having these risks. The number of patients that are, who were, did not have the risk was actually quite small uh, in the people who developed maize on the treatment. So this is uh, an interesting study. It adds to our knowledge uh, of uh, how we would manage our patients and make, making sure that we assess and also treat their risk factors if they are on treatment with a JAK inhibitor. There was also a study uh, at uh, 0404, uh, which is a study looking at another JAK inhibitor, a pan-JAK inhibitor called tofacitinib. Uh, and here, this is a, an oral uh, JAK inhibitor, and they were looking at one of the aspects, uh, which is uh, antocytis. Uh, this paper really uh, showed that it's actually quite sometimes quite challenging to assess enthesitis, especially when patients also have tender and swollen joints. And the presence of tender and swollen joints may actually affect the outcome uh, when, when patients assess for the enthesitis. Nevertheless, this study showed that in patients who won the tofacitinib arm, there was improvement in the costochondral and also Achilles uh, enthesitis. Uh, taking into account the number of tendons holding joints ahead, and, and these patients did better compared to placebo. Another area that are, where JAK inhibitors are coming in in the rheumatic diseases are in the area of uh, recycling uh, TNF inhibitors. So we usually, in the past, would have used TNF inhibitors as first-line treatment, and the question is, do we then recycle with another TNF inhibitor, or do we switch mode of action? And uh, in poster 1588, they tried to answer these questions where patients had adalimumab as their first-line TNF, and then they would switch either to etanosap or to a JAK inhibitor. And in this study, it showed that there was a slight uh, improvement uh, in, in patients who were switched to JAK inhibitor in terms of some of their outcomes compared to switching to another uh, TNF inhibitor, namely etanosap. Nevertheless, there were some patients who did well on cycling to another TNF. So this study again shows us that there are certain patients who would benefit from a switch, and usually in clinical practice, this would be some of our patients who had primary failure to the first TNF or an adverse event, uh, whereas patients who would continue on the uh, TNF inhibitor would usually be people who had a secondary failure. This is again uh, an area where we would need to do further studies especially with the advent of more therapies uh, such as JAK inhibitors in our clinical practice. I'm Anthony Chan, um, reporting here for Room Now at ACR22. So this is Peter Nash for Room Now, reporting from ACR Convergence in Philadelphia 2022. And I'm talking about a very commonly asked question, a common topic when we're talking about psoriatic arthritis, is what about those patients who have palsy arthritis? What kind of disease burden do they have? and indeed, what, how are they going to respond to treatment? Well, we're talking about the foremost study, which is an abstract 1018 presented here. It's by Daphne Gladman and her Canadian group, and it's looking specifically at this oligoarthritis group. And they gave them either a premolast or placebo. They picked early disease, and they defined them as four tender and swollen joints or less. And they've enrolled a couple of hundred of these patients, They've had disease for less than a year. It's mainly disease in the PIPs and the small joints of the hands. But these patients had a very high disease burden and they had quite impaired quality of life 
even though they only had four joints or less in, involved. So Physician Global, Patient Global, Hack, PSA, uh, all showed active disease and a disease burden, and 15% of them had dactylitis, one in three had enthesitis, two-thirds had nail disease, and about half had skin disease, more than 3% body surface area. So even though they're porcy arthritis, even though they're four joints or less, they still are significantly impaired functionally and have a high burden of disease. And we're looking forward to the results of their response to therapy, in this instance, a premolast or placebo. So we'll keep you updated when those results are available. Thank you very much. Good afternoon from Philadelphia. It's day two of ACR Convergence here with Room Now. I'm going to talk to you about one of the Ignite sessions, Abstract 1012. Dr. Alexis Ogde gave a great uh, Ignite chat about her abstract, which looked at opioid use in ankylosing spondylitis and, um, and uh, psoriatic arthritis. And what she found was there's about, uh, about a quarter of these patients were using opioids, 21% in, in in PSA, 27% in SPA. And what she found was uh, looking at who are the patients that use opioids compared to those that don't. What she found was, not surprisingly, these are patients that are sicker, that have more comorbidities, more likely to be smokers. But um, what she also then wanted to ask is, is there a difference between the way they access medical care, the, the medications that they're on? Could it be that these patients are using opioids instead of um, our classic rheumatic treatment. And that actually was not the case. When they looked at it, they found that patients were more likely to be seen by more physicians, were likely to receive at least as good of uh, medical care in terms of being on the right medicines, often even on more of the, these medicines. So um, what is it about these groups? It's not just that they're necessarily having opioids placed on, in place of these um, disease-modifying agents, but there might be something that we need to do a better job in identifying these patients and treating these patients appropriately so that they are not using opioids to treat rheumatic disease. Have a great day from ACR. So my name is Peter Nash from the School of Medicine at Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane and I'm reporting for Room Now at ACR Convergence 2022. This is an abstract that's looking at a very hot topic. How do you pick the patients with psoriasis is going to go on to get psoriatic arthritis. Now we don't have a good biomarker to help us decide. This group from Germany, led by Georg Schett and his team, asked the question, is there any imaging modality that will help us pick the PSO patient who will develop PSA? And they used a PET scanning approach and a particular PET CT with a gallium labeled selective inhibitor of fibroblast activator protein. Now this shows fibroblast activity because there's some evidence that fibroblasts are activated in the synovium and in the entheses of patients with active psoriatic arthritis. Now it was only a very small study, only 10 patients, but these people had no clinical signs of or symptoms of psoriatic arthritis. They were imaged they imaged uh, 29 emphysial sites. They did the 66, 68 tender swollen joint count. And what did they find? They found 86% had positive uptake in the synovo-emphysial region progressed to PSA over the period of follow-up. And of the ones 
who, of the three patients who were negative, none of them progressed to PSA. The median PSA free survival was 207 days before they progressed. So this imaging technique is hypothesis generating, an expensive technique, they look using imaging, and when they're finding positive signs, a very high percentage of them do go on to develop PSA when examined by rheumatologists, and the ones who are negative, they didn't go on to develop PSA. So it's a watch this space, it's small numbers, but we really do need something to help us pick the patients at high risk of progressing so that we can maybe intervene early and prevent the progression. Thank you very much. Hi everyone, this is Aurélie Linage from Glasgow. I hope you had a great time for day one of ACR. I actually surely did, um, and I'm really glad to be here with you again for day two. Um, a couple of abstracts today I want to um, discuss with you. Um, and you know, this is a very common situation that I've got, at least in my practice, with either AXPA or um, psoriatic arthritis patients that, you know, failed to respond to a first TNF inhibitor. And then the question always is, do we switch or do we cycle? And, you know, we do have data um, suggesting that maybe switching for a different mechanism of action in RA would be more efficient. We, we don't really have that um, data for PSA or axial spinal arthritis. So first abstract is 1499 presented as a poster by uh, Philip Mies. So basically what they did is they looked into the Corevitas um, um, registry. Uh, and this is AXPA and PSA patients, but they looked specifically into the AXPA um, patients. And it was only a small number, it was about 80 patients. But um, they looked into those who's been cycled to a second TNF inhibitor after an inadequate response to a first one. And what they saw is that the um, percentage of good response after the six months of the second TNF inhibitor is actually really low. Um, in fact, at six months, only 15% were reaching um, ASDAS low disease activity, 7% were showing an, a minimally uh, clinical um, improvement, and basically zero patients were having a major improvement. So um, this is not very encouraging, and this is not very suggestive of you know, um, showing we should probably not cycle for these people. Um, now moving to the second abstract, 1600, um, presented by Alex Ojdienal. Basically, it's the same um, registry, Corevitas, but at this time they looked into PSA patients. And basically, um, it was about 400, and they looked into those who um, switched versus those who cycled towards the second TTNF. And it was in PSA patients this time, not in AXPA. And um, there are a few things that I found out. So first of all, there was about 50% switching and 50% cycling. Those who switched for a different mechanism of action in, in uh, general had a higher disease activity, higher severity of psoriasis. And um, on top of that, um, they also were less likely to have a minimal uh, disease activity state. Now, what are the results? Actually, at six months, they showed that those who were switching in comparison to those who were cycling 
were more likely to achieve minimal disactivity, um, about seven times more likely actually. They were also three times more likely to uh, reduce their pen scores and two times more likely to reach an HASDQ inferior to 0.5. Now we need to keep in mind that these are not necessarily, were not necessarily significant, they were mostly trends here and it's probably uh, with confidence interval um, usually crossing one, uh, probably because of a small sample size, but these data are quite suggestive that we should probably switch more than we cycle. Um, so that was um, this for today. I hope you um, are enjoying the conference. Tune in on rumnow.com for daily ACR coverage, and I'll see you soon. Hi, this is Dr. Artie Kavanagh coming to you for Room Now, and I'm at ACR Convergence 2022. It's a big meeting, a lot of information, and of course, a lot of scientific abstracts, and I think that's what most of us like. I'm talking about psoriatic arthritis, and the abstract I like to talk about now is abstract 1600. And this is the impact of second-line therapeutic changes on disease control after discontinuation of the first-line TNF inhibitor in patients with psoriatic arthritis. And this comes from the Coravitis, previously known as Corona Registry, the PSA SPA registry that they have. So it's an interesting analysis that looks at PSA patients who had been on a TNF inhibitor, first line, and then were changed to another TNF inhibitor, they call them cycling, or switched to a different mechanism of action. Uh, these are great data. I always say that PSA is lagging behind rheumatoid arthritis by about 10 years. And we've seen these studies in rheumatoid arthritis, and I think they're a good source of information of practical data that we as clinicians can take to our patients and present them with information to help them make the best choice. In this case, the cyclers did well and by and large, but you could make the case that the changers, those who went to a different mechanism of action, did seem to do a little bit better. Of course, always the, the devil is going to be in the details, and we'd love to know what specific patients could possibly cycle from one TNF to another as opposed to those who should go to a different mechanism of action. And there, the involvement across domains of disease, I think is going to be very important, important in making that decision, also important in the choice of subsequent therapy. So interesting data that does help inform us, I think, and the more we learn, the better we'll be able to present therapeutic options to our patients to get them better. So this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh for Room Now, coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia. Thank you. Hi, it's Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from ACR Convergence 2022 in Philadelphia. It's been a very busy meeting, a lot of interesting papers as always, and it's good to be back in person to be able to interact with people. The abstracts I'd like to cover are in psoriatic arthritis. One I'm going to present right now is a late breaker, late breaker 02, and this is from the Be Optimal study. This was a study of bimikizumab, the IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor, compared with adalimumab and then also with placebo. So it's an interesting study that we're, uh, we like. It's not powered strictly to be a head-to-head -head study, but we are able to compare the data. At 16 weeks, what we saw was that the, the uh, bimikizumab and the adalimumab arm were 
superior to the placebo. We had seen those data before. At 16 weeks, the dimikizumab 160 milligram group continued. The adalimumab group switched to the bimikizumab at week 16, as did the placebo group. Then they were followed out over time. Interestingly, uh, at the endpoint of the study, the ACR50 response is pretty similar. 54.5, 50, and 53 across the, the original bimikizumab group, the original adalimumab group, and the original placebo group, all of whom are on bimikizumab now. And the MDA response is very nice, 55%, 53%, and 53.7%. So I think these studies, I love studies that give us the ability to kind of take a look at different mechanisms of action. Uh, I think we're looking at appropriate goals like minimal disease activity, and it's interesting data. I think with the bimikizumab, we have to see, are there going to be differences to the other IL-17 inhibitors in terms of either efficacy or safety? So very interested in seeing additional data from this. It's a great presentation uh, at the ACR. And this is Dr. Artie Kavanaugh coming to you from Philadelphia, ACR 2022 Convergence for Room Now. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm here at Room Now at ACR 22 Convergence here in Philadelphia. I wanted to talk about the response of women versus men to treatment in seronegative arthritis looking at both psoriatic arthritis and axial spondylitis. So the first one is abstract number 1614. And with that, they looked at women with radiographic or non-radiographic axial spa and compared it to men. And they found something that to me is a bit confusing. They found that the response to any treatment in women was less only if they were non-radiographic, but it was equal if they were radiographic compared to men. And I don't think it's misclassification. These were large centers that know how to diagnose um, ankylosing spondylitis. It didn't look like there were treatment differences, so I think more will come. And a lot of the treatment was with a TNF inhibitor, and maybe there's something about radiographic versus non-radiographic and TNF, but I don't really know. So the other one is looking, moving, and shifting gears to psoriatic arthritis. So it was um, abstract number 1601. And in this one, they actually were looking at a response to treatment with ustekinumab. So to remind everyone, it's an IL-1223 inhibitor. And it was looking as a sub-analysis of the randomized controlled trials in psoriatic arthritis. So the question was, if a man versus a woman is on methotrexate with ustekinumab, does it make a difference? And the weird thing is that if it was a man and he was on methotrexate and had ustekinumab, he actually had a better response than ustekinumab alone. Whereas in the women of the study, it made no difference. And they looked at all sorts of things, dactylitis, enthesitis, and other things. So again, is it a treatment response that's something to do with other cytokines, IL-1223, is it just a fluke because it's a subset analysis? I don't know, but I think, again, the take home for me as I go to clinic next week is I should be cognizant that there might be a difference in effect for women with seronegative types of arthritis on certain treatments compared to others. Otherwise, I don't really know what to make of it, and I think more will come on gender discrepancies. So thank you and enjoy the meeting.